Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has himself become our wisdom, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever wondered what you would ask for if a genie appeared to you and gave you three wishes? I know that I did as a child, especially watching movies like uh, Disney's Aladdin with uh, the genie. And in our story from, or in our chapter from the story uh, this past week, we read about how God came to Solomon. And uh, you might describe this as kind of Solomon's genie experience. Solomon's enjoying a peaceful night's sleep when suddenly God appears and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And I don't know this for sure, but I think he might have used Robin Williams' voice. Now, this is quite a deal, isn't it? God is offering Solomon anything. So what is Solomon going to ask for? A million dollars or, uh, or shekels or whatever it was back then? Or a uh, shiny new chariot, you know, this year's model? Solomon can ask for anything he wants, but what does he say? Give your servant a wise and discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. Solomon asks for wisdom to rule his people justly, and the Lord is delighted to give it. Solomon becomes the wisest man ever to have lived. He composes over a thousand songs, over three thousand proverbs, or wise sayings. I thought I'd share with you a few of my favorite proverbs. Uh, Here's the first one. This, unfortunately, our dog Chance brought this one all too vividly to mind for me this week. Um, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Or how about this one? Do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Stay awake and you will have food to spare. I've kind of been asking God why our son Ethan keeps us up at night and now I know he's trying to make sure we stay financially stable. So we appreciate that. Um... And then this one, a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. I won't make any preacher jokes here, but um, this is just solid, practical advice for your life. I'd encourage you sometime this week, if you haven't done it this past week as you read through this chapter of the story, open up to the the book of Proverbs and just peruse it. I guarantee you, uh, very quickly, you'll find something you'll be able to apply to your life right away. Of course, as we know, Solomon was not only the wisest man ever to have lived, he was also really the wealthiest. God had been pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom, and so he promises to give him great wealth as well. I did a little bit of research here. Uh, By modern measurement, Solomon was easily a billionaire, and uh, it's possible that he was the only trillionaire in the history of the world. In fact, as I was typing up my notes for this sermon, I, I typed in the word trillionaire, and Microsoft Word told me it is not a word, which shows how rare uh, Solomon's wealth really was. Because of Solomon's wisdom and his wealth, his rule was in some ways the high point of the entire Old Testament. The king was faithful, the people were being blessed, the nation of Israel was thriving. People were making worship of the one true God, their priority, and the borders of the nation were expanded to the the largest, the widest they would ever be. And Solomon recognized that all of this was a gift from God. Solomon realized that God was both the source and the giver of both his wealth 
and his wisdom. And so in his book of Proverbs, he writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So for Solomon, the smartest man in the world, what is wisdom? Well, this is your first blank in your sermon outline. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now what Solomon means by fear here is not that we're so terrified of God that we, that we run from him and want nothing to do with him. It's a healthy fear. It's, it's being in complete awe of God's glory, his power, and his mercy. Solomon began his life with this fear of the Lord and he built this magnificent and awe-inspiring temple to reflect it to the world. Everything was just as it should be and Solomon's rule was marked by wisdom and success. But then, one of the greatest tragedies in scripture begins to unfold. Solomon fails to listen to his own advice. It's a slow fade. Little by little, Solomon forgets the God who had granted him such success until he's at the end of his life and looks back with deep regret. Ecclesiastes is the book that Solomon wrote, we believe, at the end of his life to to look back and reflect on everything he'd learned throughout his days. Some have called Ecclesiastes Solomon's diary. Um, I'd invite you, if, if you would, grab one of the Bibles in the, the pew rack in front of you, or if you have it on your smartphone, or maybe brought your Bible with you, open up with me to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, I'd like to take a look with you at a, a few of the things that Solomon turned to for fulfillment, for pleasure, and for love instead of the Lord God. There in Ecclesiastes 2, uh, verse 3, Solomon says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. In other words, he looks, looks to drinking and, and partying and kind of the social scene to make him happy. When that didn't work, he went on to seek worldly success. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, he says in, in verses 4 and 5. In fact, uh, 1 Kings, the, the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7 tell us that, that Solomon spent seven years building the temple. It's a, it a pretty, pretty big project. But then it says, however, Solomon spent more than 13 years building his own palace, suggesting that Solomon's priorities have shifted from God to himself. This is so much the case that Solomon actually begins to, to take credit, it seems, for his great wealth. Something earlier on he had recognized was a gracious gift given entirely by the hand, by the hand of God. <clears throat> he says uh, in verses 7 and 8, I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon begins to forget the giver of all that he has. Then he looks to entertainment. I acquired men and women singers, he says. He turns to popularity and prestige. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. All of these things do their part to to turn the heart of Solomon away from God. But the most spiritually destructive aspect of Solomon's life is not any of these things, but what he casually alludes to in verse 9, where he says, I acquired a harem as well 
the delight of the hearts of man. First Kings 11 tells us that Solomon had how many wives? 700. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I found a cartoon here that, that kind of suggests maybe what this was like. If you can't read that, it says, uh, Hey, I know where I recognize you from. You're one of my wives, aren't you? I mean, that's probably something that happened. How do you keep track of that many people? Um, and, and so, you know, Solomon has, has all of these relationships and, and they begin to, to ruin his life. Now, you can probably imagine some of the practical ways that this can happen with uh, 700 marriages. And we actually catch a glimpse of this in uh, some of Solomon's other Proverbs. Like uh, Proverbs twenty-one nineteen, Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Or Proverbs twenty-five twenty-four, Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Or Proverbs 27.15, a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Now, uh, some of you men out there are kind of smiling and looking out of the corner of your eye, making sure that your wife isn't noticing that you're smiling. And, and before I get in too much trouble, I'm, I'm sure that you wives would have plenty um, of those types of things to say about us husbands, and for good reason. When two people live together, they tend to get on each other's nerves every now and then, maybe annoy each other here and there. In Solomon's case, he had 700 opportunities to learn such things. 700 uh, dripping faucets. But more importantly, most of Solomon's wives were from nations that God had specifically commanded the Israelites to stay away from. But as 1 Kings tells us, nevertheless... In other words, contrary to what God had to say about it, Solomon held fast to them in love, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Solomon made a habit of dating and marrying people who wanted nothing to do with the true God, people who dragged their idols into their relationship and into Solomon's heart. In the end, Solomon's problem really was that he loved himself. He became concerned only with those things that made him happy. As he himself writes there in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. But where does it end up getting him? He tells us his conclusion in the very next verse. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was, what? Meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You see, for all of his wisdom, Solomon's life was a wreck. His head was right, but his heart had been carried far, far away. The sad irony of it all is captured well if we look back at the prayer Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. There he had said, May the Lord our God turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways. But just three chapters later, we encounter those sad words I read just a minute ago. 
as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. There had been a time when Solomon's heart was God's. But then he let others turn it elsewhere and tear it up. So let me ask you this. Who, or maybe what, has your heart? Where do you turn for pleasure, for fulfillment, for meaning, for love? Drinking and hanging out with your friends? Making enough money so that you're happy? Entertainment? Do you spend more time looking into your phone screen than into the eyes of of the people you love? Um, Looking into the heart of of God as you read his word? These sorts of questions help us to, to find out where our heart is. Along with the words of Jesus when when he says this. Read this with me if you would. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? Think of your monthly expenses. Where is your money going? Eating out? Entertainment? The church? Those who are in need? Pastor Brandt shared an excellent sermon last week with us on crazy generosity. God gave, gave King David and then his son Solomon incredible wealth so that they might be a blessing to others. And God has given us all that we have for the same reason. Your time is also a good indicator of your heart. What do you spend your time doing? Uh, spending it on, on Facebook or watching TV or maybe spending time in devotions or in serving people? Think about it in this way. If a guy is dating a girl, but he never spends any time with her and never gives her any gifts, does he really love her? Speaking of dating, are are you keeping your heart pure in in that area of your life, dating and relationships? Unlike Solomon, uh, most of us today don't have to worry about the sin of polygamy. Um, And I don't know that any of us have ever met a concubine But uh, there's plenty here for us to consider nonetheless. One surefire way to let your heart be turned away from God is to date someone who doesn't care about him at all. One guaranteed way to wreck your life is to give your heart to someone who won't cherish it as God does and who will drag their idols into your relationship and invite you to bow down together before them. As Pastor Fitzgerald read for us, Paul says in Galatians, Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. We reap what we sow. If we sow to please the sinful nature, we will reap destruction as Solomon did. Now this is is also speaking to those of us who are married. It's not just about dating. You know, Jesus tells us, if if you so much as look at someone with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. This also applies to to TV shows, to movies, to to a halftime shows that we expose ourselves to, where where people are exposing themselves to us. This applies to to any aspect of our lives where we put anyone, especially ourselves, in the center instead of God. So what do we do? Solomon tells us in uh, chapter 4 of Proverbs, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We guard our hearts through healthy habits, habits of consistent prayer, of spending time in the scripture so that we don't look back like Solomon did and remember how at one time long ago, God had our heart. 
We don't want to suddenly realize down the road, wow, I, I never pray, I never read the Bible anymore. I don't give God any of my, my time or, or my money. And so we don't give our hearts away to those who will destroy them. We watch ourselves, we examine ourselves, we, we guard our hearts from slowly fading away. We can wreck our life by putting ourselves in the center. The good news is, God has and does continue to renew our lives. When we uh, engage in daily repentance, when we return to our baptism every day and drown our sinful nature, pushing ourselves as far away from the center as possible so that Christ may dwell there. We sow to please the Spirit. And through Christ and through him alone, we reap eternal life. This is possible because, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is, as we've already said, the fear of the Lord. Paul adds to that by saying that Christ himself is our wisdom. And wisdom is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption given by Christ. We are righteous, we are holy, we are redeemed. We have clean and pure hearts, not because we are wise in ourselves, but because Christ died to make us those things. If you want to be wise then, live in God's word, for the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus whose gospel they proclaim. Through him, one greater than Solomon is here. He is wisdom and the desire of our hearts. In addition to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Solomon also wrote this uh, racy love poem known as the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Scholars are divided on whether this book is about sex and relationships and courting or whether it's an analogy of Christ's love for the church. It's both. It uh, teaches us how to faithfully reserve God's good gift of sexuality for our spouse and and to celebrate it in that context. And it presents a gorgeous picture of Christ's longing for us and our heart's desire for him. So let's close with a prayer to God using parts of this beautiful love poem. Please pray with me. Lord, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, For your love, O God, is as strong as death. Its jealousy is unyielding as the grave. Your love, O God, has conquered death and destroyed the grave. Your love burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame, burning and turning our hearts to you. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. But your love in Christ has washed us through baptism and will never let us go. May your wisdom, Christ himself, never leave our hearts. Amen. Please stand. Now, may the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our wisdom from God, now and forever. Amen.